This is Control Structure, episode 86 for May 9th, 2015. Big week to everyone listening. The show has notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs86 to see them. With me is Andrew Bailey. Hi. Hi, Andrew. And I'm Stephen. So, uh, what's been going on? You're here in my apartment again. I think I think this we can call this normal now. Yes, I, I would say that. It seems to work really well uh, doing it. Yeah, since you know, you're coming down here for your uh, scrum like every two weeks? Yes, it's a, a two-week cycle. We have the, the sprints. We're doing the, the agile or trying to anyways. So we have, uh, have the two-week sprint, and then we have our scrum review meeting where we take a look at the code we, we wrote, and the business people say, no, that's not what we wanted, or yes, it is, and, and uh, we go from there. So, so um, in other words, it sounds like you're actually doing this properly. We actually are just about doing it properly. Like, they're so, really trying to do it right. So, like, you actually have a scrum master? Kind of. We are uh, uh, manager. I'm trying to think of his official PM. I think that might be his official title. Anyways, he would be our scrum master per se. I wouldn't say that he's exactly that in the traditional sense, but he does do a good job at leading the, the team and helping so, us along the way. So you said almost scrum. He, he is a certified scrum master. He went to training and got the training. He's still he's still kind of the PM, but he, he really is. I, I, I'd say he's doing a good job. Just uh, in my experience, I've heard of other scrum masters being like, say, a lead developer from another team, and they, they more participate in the scrum meeting in the morning and don't really have a vested interest in the project. They're just there to tell people to shut up and talk about it after the meeting <laughs> or to guide the guide them if there's a specific issue. And whereas uh, our PM is more has a vested interest in the project, and so I, I don't think he quite has the outside perspective that maybe is considered right, but it's Scrum, which means do what makes sense, so maybe it is right for us. So then... Uh, uh... Let's see. So yeah, then during your stand-ups, you know, only the programmers and stuff get to talk? See, that's not exactly true. We, uh, the developer, not the developer, the designer does talk, which also is another place where it's not quite right. Well, I'm, I'd, I'd say he would qualify as a pig in the scenario. Yeah, he, he, he would be a pig. I, I would, <laughs> I, I would, I would agree with that. I was referring kind of to how we're doing the designer and he's still making waterfall design documents, but the difference is we're not reading the design documents. Instead, <laughs> we tell him how it works and he updates the design document to reflect the changes. So it's it's a bit different, but you kind of get the sense that specific, specifically what he's doing may not quite fit how we should be doing it. And so it's just something as a team we kind of need to play with and adjust that specific thing some. Hmm. So, yeah, meanwhile, uh, it looks like my company might be taking on another client. Um, so, and in the meantime, I am updating Willow Tree to be responsive. So, uh, like, I don't think I've actually explained this well to most people anyway, that, uh, you know, when my company gets a new client that does not have a site, uh, you know, we, you know, set up something on Demandware, which is, you know, our, uh, e-commerce platform, uh, or not exactly ours. It's like another company's, but like we're, I guess, 
the technical term would be an integration partner. So, uh, you know, we get things set up on there and Demandware has something called Site Genesis, which is, you know, sort of like your uh, generic storefront that, you know, it, you know, has the product and category management sort of at least enough to like display them on the page and like an uh, integrated checkout flow. Um, so pretty much all we have to do is like, you know, dress it up to, you know, with the client's branding and integrate the checkout with like payment processors. Um, and then like whatever kind of order management system that they have and possibly a product, uh, management as well. So really your companies is more into customizing the core basic site is kind of what it amounts to. It seems. Yeah. So, uh, the default site Genesis is now has been on version two for several years. Uh, but, uh, Demdeco has been with us since slightly before I got there. So they're on like the first edition of site Genesis, um, uh, for the most part. And, uh, Willow Tree is like their most, uh, trafficked site. Uh, so like, uh, Willow Tree are, uh, like, generally are like faceless figures that you find in like hallmark shops and uh i think a lot of uh was it hospital gift shops have them so uh like it's like their most popular product line by far and uh, we will be uh releasing the updated version of that uh within the next month or two so uh like it'll be all responsive and stuff the uh that's pretty much the Give dead giveaway of Site Genesis one versus two is that Site Genesis two is responsive. So does it make use of like Ajax to go heavily web stuff? Okay, heavily. Um, that and uh, like on the uh, more on the code side is that uh, like instead of like having libraries and projects and stuff, they're called cartridges. Interesting. So. Uh, like whenever we do integration with the payment processor, that's a separate cartridge, uh, like have another site. That's another cartridge generally, uh, for site Genesis one, there's only like the general storefront cartridge for site Genesis two. It's the storefront and a rich UI cartridge, which has like pretty much all the JavaScript stuff. And, uh, like I remember last year, that uh, demand were sort of like interviewed, must have interviewed like all of their, uh, you know, partners, uh, you know, like, what do you like about Site Genesis and what do you not like? And it turned out that pretty much mostly everyone in my company liked Site Genesis. Um, just like a few little nibbles, uh, like, uh, for instance, the dynamic imaging service, excuse me, like pretty much every site that we, uh, and create we have to go around to like maybe 30 different templates and change the way that images are displayed so like instead of like grabbing it directly off of the uh like the product database uh we have to like call this other server that like resizes images uh like on demand seems like so is that being a slow thing for you then it seems to use the service opposed to saving the image away someplace um for far as I know, like there's like some contract signed or something, uh, like it's apparently like not standard, but, uh, uh, you know, like one of the things that I brought up is that, you know, each time we have to go through like 30, uh, like 30 different templates, 
So to uh, include this one library, so like it'll actually like use it without like much uh, fuss, I guess. So and like uh, like that uh, image service, you know, takes the image like you know from the product that is uploaded with the product and like resizes it down to like all the different sizes. Uh, like for instance, like on a product page, you have that nice large-ish image. Yes. And like you can zoom over and get to the really big image and then you can put it in your cart and it becomes that little tiny image. So that's what all that does. So is it doing it dynamically then or is it? Supposedly, yes. But, uh, you know, along with everything, it's like all heavily cached. Okay. So so, so it is dynamic. It's just it's probably caching it. And- yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, pretty interesting to work with. And I've thought about doing something like that on my own blog because apparently Google page speed yells at me saying, Oh, if you resize these images, you can like save 80% on your bandwidth for mobile devices. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's like half a meg of page size. It's like not that bad. See that, that can make a difference of for mobile device where you're using, uh, like data, a data plan where you have X number of megabytes per month. If you have a really low plan, that might make a big difference to someone if your site cannot eat up you know, half a megabyte right. or something. So, but then with, uh, like high density images, I'm taking advantage of like retina type displays too. So, you know, if they're on Wi-Fi, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's on Wi-Fi. That's true. So, uh, let's see. I guess we sort of drifted away from, you know, what we're sort of doing, but Hey, it was a good, good side conversation. Yeah. This is a little bit more serious. So, uh, May the 4th, uh, was earlier this, this week, and I'm pretty sure what I'm going to say will generate a lot of feedback from certain listeners, but, uh, hey, let's go ahead and do it anyway. So, May the 4th, it means more than what you think, and Star Wars has, like, no relationship to it, aside from it being a cute pun on a popular line from the movies. So... You know, I sort of researched this, and it is a very recent thing. Um, so Eric Meyer, and if you're like connected to the uh, CSS development scene, I guess uh, at all, you'll know who he is. Uh, he came out with a CSS reset like ten years ago, and like what what that does is essentially like collapses like all the margins and borders and stuff, and like makes sort of like a clean slate and reset and resets it to, uh, like, all the clears out all the browser styles, essentially. But uh, anyways, you know, I go around to his blog, you know, as I do, and uh, he uh, made a tweet about uh, a certain tragedy that also happened on May 4th. So uh, this might be relevant to both of us since we grew up within, like, 100 miles of this place. But uh, on May 4th, 1970, uh, the National Guard was called, called out to Kent State University uh, to quell a anti-Vietnam protest. Um, as far as I know, I guess it uh, was like generally peaceable until the National Guard came and killed like nine people, uh, like college students, you know, people younger than us were killed for protesting. Uh, and so Eric Meyer here tweets, you know, about this 
and he adds the hashtag May the 4th. And because Twitter is run by, you know, like hipster uh, nerds, you know, they decided to, oh, May the 4th, that's like Star Wars. So they decided to put a Stormtrooper helmet icon on like any hashtag, you know, referencing May the 4th. And this comes off as entirely the wrong thing to do in this case. Um, so it's, you know, just, you know, essentially a edge case on this. You can't exactly grab data out of context and, you know, make sure that it's acceptable to humans. You know, you got to look out for that. It, it definitely seems like something they just overlooked. They're probably sitting there thinking, it's like, oh, of course they're going to... Anyone with that hashtag is talking about Star Wars. They probably expected a lot of people to do that. And uh, obviously it backfired. So, and uh, apparently May the 4th is also remembrance of the dead day in the Netherlands. So, you know, this this isn't just, you know, this one event. It's, you know, anything that could happen on that day. You know, someone might add, you know, the date as a hashtag to it. And don't get me started on hashtags, they're a complete hack to the system. But that's neither here nor there. That That's another uh, rant I'll do probably sometime else. And uh, speaking of, you know, situations like this, this is not the first time that social media has burned Eric Meyer. His experience with Facebook's year in review uh, for last New Year's actually kind of made national news. So... Uh, you know, speaking of Facebook, they wanted to go back and see what was the most, you know, I would say popular or the most, uh, you know, uh, talked about, uh, you know, thing that this user, like any user posted. And, uh, you know, the pretty much the only solid way that they could do that is measuring the number of likes something had. And it just so happens that the most liked post that this guy put on Facebook last year was the announcement that his daughter had died. So, you know, here we go. It's like, yeah, this is like all all the stuff that happened in the last year. Your daughter died. So that's not exactly the thing you want to do. Especially the presentation of it. They put, like, balloons and people dancing and happy around this nice picture of his now-dead daughter. Yeah. So, you know, him, you know, being an engineer and at least a uh, a computer scientist, he, you know, under- understood what was going on behind the scenes. And he actually titled this blog post, Inadvertent Algorithmic Cruelty. So, you know, he sort of understood what was going on, but, you know, again, you know, People running like these social networks don't really think about the edge cases too well. You know, you know, they could have said is like, hey, you know, we have this, you know, sort of interesting feature. Would you like to try it out? Like just as a link, just as, you know, uh, and like maybe like a static image of good things that have happened, you know, like for other people's posts, say, um, and then, like, he writes a follow-up blog post, you know, stating that, you know, all this blew up and he didn't exactly, you know, anticipate it going national like what it did. Um, apparently, the uh, product manager at Facebook re- that, uh, you know, like, sort of came out with this, like, actually sent him an apology. <laughs> so, and, 
he was and Eric was apparently nice enough and apologized back for making their lives more difficult. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he he isn't mad over any of this. He's this is just something that he has observed. He seems to be a very level-headed guy in his reactions to these things. As you said in the art, the uh, article about uh, the inadvertent algorithm cruelty, he said, you know, it was a jarring thing for him to to be presented that way by Facebook. And it was a reoccurring ad that, you know, kept coming up, but uh, he didn't get all angry about it. He just wrote the post and kind of said, you know, this was just a kind of a mistake that they had done. So in that sense, he is a, uh, he is, uh, seems to be level headed. Yeah. Um, and I sort of like how, uh, Google does this in Gmail in that, you know, it has, you know, text based ads, but if it, if it picks up, you know, like someone, like some, like very bad thing happened in the email thread, like it's like, oh, someone died, or this is like announcement of a funeral or something, it'll actually disable the text ads. Oh, really? I never noticed that before. That's, that's, that, that, that's a good safe way to do it because it's just kind of like it could go wrong. So it's, it's, it's a smart thing to do something like that. So anyway, we have a Kickstarter, uh, for this episode and uh if you've been around for a while you may remember uh the uh uh like the usb uh, solar panel kickstarter uh from about two years ago uh so the same guy is back and he's taken you know some of the feedback from the last time and he has created the badger now what this is is a very uh waterproof and very uh uh, how should I say, durable uh, line of solar panels. Uh, it creates, it produces uh, quite a bit more power than the uh, previous models, uh, but it can stand up to a lot more. Yes, in the video they had a few different examples of things they had tested with it, and one was dropping a bowling ball on it, running it over with a car, and then they shot it with a shotgun too, which was... Kind of fun to see. And supposedly after they did that with it, it still worked. Not sure if it was the same one they did those things to, but uh, evidently it was able to take those, which is impressive for a solar panel because if you've ever worked with them, they just this really fine glass that breaks very easily. So they mentioned coating it in some way. Evidently that made it stronger. Or at least more scratch resistant. Yeah, more scratch resistant. I don't know how they're dropping the bowling ball on it and not having it shatter. But they've evidently done something with it. So, and apparently it has a, at least a water resistant pouch. Uh, so yes. like when it folds over. And it also uh, come this, you can also get... Uh, power banks with these, which are also waterproof and, you know, car-proof, uh, so... At least the brick is car-proof. They showed a video, in the video, the, the car well, drove over the... the and brick. dropping it in the water. Yes, it's waterproof, too. So, the which, car. you know, and, you know, looking over all this, pretty much as soon as the guy shot it, I should have known that you would like this. Probably a pretty fair assumption there.
Raspberry. Raspberry? Raspberry. Raspberry. Windows 10, as you may recall, a while back we talked about, uh, they were really... Standby for garbage collection. Is he going to back up? No, I think he's going the other way. Ha. He hasn't backed up in a very long time. Yeah. Like, even even the days I'm not recording, he doesn't back up. <laughs> wow, well, he must have must have gotten better. So, anyways, as you may re- recall, we uh, talked about Raspberry Pi, uh, what's it, 2.0? Yeah, Model that, 2. Yes, Model 2 that has the... the uh, that one quad core yes. in it with a gigabyte of memory. Yes, and uh, when that was announced, the, there's also an announcement that Windows 10 would be coming for the Raspberry Pi 2. Well, the day has arrived, and now you can actually download Windows 10 for your Raspberry Pi 2. So yeah, this is... Hmm. Looks like there's uh, some garbage collection going on down the road. Ah, <laughs> uh, I could hear the beeping down there. But, uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah. yeah I believe this is the Windows 10 Internet of Things uh, edition. So... Yes. Is it they're really trying to target the people doing stuff with it? As in, like, maybe they have, like, example projects that they're thinking you might do. Like, you could do a weather station or do a, a remote control robot or a weather picture. Uh, they're also integrating not just with the Pi. Uh, it's something with Adreno. I'm trying to find if there's an actual specific Adreno pro- product. Um... I think it's just saying Adreno and... In general. Yeah, in general. So, they're not just going for the Pi, but uh, it's, it's def- definitely an interesting move uh, that Microsoft is doing, getting into this market. I think it also shows that this Internet of Things is getting bigger and bigger. And uh, Although I'm not particularly enthused about it. We'll talk about that later. I think there's, there's good and bad that can come with it. So, what's this about a radio camera? Yes. So there's a project uh, that up on Lifehacker Hacker they posted about uh, that actually sends uh, a image over slow scan television, which is kind of like your normal TV, with the exception of instead of sending like 30 pictures in a second, it takes 30 seconds to send one picture. <laughs> so a little bit of reversal there. But what that means is your bandwidth for sending the picture does not have to be that great. And so how they're doing it is on the Pi, they take a picture and then they use a program that converts that picture into an audio file. And they have a radio then wired up to the Pi that they can turn a transmit on and off with it. They, they're activating the push to push to talk button is what they're doing and then they actually play back that audio file then that represents the image and they play that back over the radio and it can transmit and if you have a slow scan television that knows how to interpret that image you can then see the image show up what the one thing i was kind of disappointed about in this instructable it didn't really go into detail how you would uh what you would use to see the image. I was kind of hoping it was saying, you know, you'd need this TV or maybe you can kind of hack it and listen on a radio and record the file and use this program on your, on your desktop. But uh, Or def- this is the module you can plug into another Pi to receive it. Exactly. That would be just equal, equally as, as fun to see that. But it's an interesting concept and it's very module in the sense that they're not really tied to a specific radio. 
uh, that's where they're saying, you know, you have to watch the don't use a radio that would be illegal to use without a license or something on the wrong frequency. Mm-hmm. But uh, essentially, they're just doing the, the, you know, a radio that has push to talk on it and it just plays the audio file into the microphone. So I think you could probably use something like a two way radio that you combine Walmart or something like that. It just goes like two miles and you might be able to set something up with that. Now, what I like about this is that in this Instructables article, it says, we'll use solar panels we got from Brown Dog Gadgets, just like that Kickstarter, because it's the same guy doing that. It's the same guy. Yeah. Okay. Which which is uh, an, an interesting point here that they brought up in the article is you can be off the grid with those solar panels, and at that point in time... Your Pi is transmitting onto a radio that's there with it, and assuming it's powered off of the panels too, you can have a self-contained box out in the woods someplace that is transmitting pictures to you, and you don't even need batteries per se, because you probably don't care about taking pictures at night when your camera can't see anything anyways. That's true. So it's, it's actually... But, but you'd probably want to have batteries anyway, you know, in case of the power sags during the day. I, I would agree with that. You would have time periods and like your morning and evening would be times when you might want to be taking pictures. But yeah. I would see it more as an optional thing. Exactly. But it's a really neat concept though. It'd be fun to do. So next up, we actually have a competitor to the Pi. It's been a few different competitors, but this is one of the most interesting. It's called Chip, the world's first $9 computer. $9. So, yes. So that beats the Pi by, what, you're 35, and so that's... Well, 25. Oh, yes, you can get the, the Model A for that, isn't it? Well, except then they bumped the Model A down to $20. Okay, so maybe $11. 11 bucks. But here's the thing, though. What your Model A doesn't have is it doesn't have a built-in Wi-Fi chip. It doesn't have built-in Bluetooth. And it seems like this is much better for compact things. One example they gave of a project was making a clock. A Pi could do a clock, but, I mean, you have to have a Wi-Fi thing sticking out or an Ethernet cable running to it if you want to communicate with a clock. It's a little bit more complex, whereas the Wi-Fi chip built-in is just really nice, and the Bluetooth built-in is really nice, and so that makes it handy to plug things in and do things with it. So I, I think it, for certain uses of the Pi, it could be a really good competitor. Now, some uses like for a kid learning to program, which was actually the original target audience for the Pi, the Pi probably still is better, uh, especially considering the Raspberry Pi 2 with the quad core and we have the SD card, which this in contrast actually just has uh, four gigabytes of internal storage that you're stuck with. And so that means you can't hop or you can't swap out your memory like you can with the Pi. I can have, say, with the Furnace app that I have, I can have an SD card with the operating system set up to do that. And then I could have Jasper set up that does the voice recognition software on another SD card. I could plug that in, or I could have some totally different one. And I can swap those around very quickly in the pod. You're changing my brain. Exactly. At least we're not doing it when it's still alive. <laughs> that would be catastrophic. Yes. But it, it's it's... It's well. That's neat. I just realized that Kickstarter actually has a some sort of a live feed with your backers and the dollars, and yeah. you can see people backing the backing the pie or the nine dollar computer. I think it's gone up like forty thousand dollars tonight. Like when I first looked at it, it's well, at three hundred thousand now. I'd say yeah, about ten thousand or so. Yeah. So it's it's gone up quite a bit yeah. in just this 
because it's it's, it's over three hundred thousand now. Yeah, and what's kind of crazy is uh, I was trying to find when it, the backing started. I think it started like one, maybe two days ago. Yeah, and the, the original goal was fifty thousand. Now they're up to three hundred thousand. So it's really taken off as far as backers go. It's it's a great concept, and it beats uh, another chip that. I had been talking to a friend with that had Wi-Fi built in. I'm, it's Spark. It's like Spark. Spark Core, maybe, I think. Maybe. You Google it. Wait, Spark. Spark.io. That's what it is. And uh, it's, it's a very similar concept to this. It's just a really small computer that has Wi-Fi built in, but it's not really set up to do the keyboard. It's not set up to do the display, which this actually has the composite out, and you can buy, like, a... Uh, get the proper term for it uh shield i think that's the term yeah a shield that is vga or a shield that's hdmi or you can even buy they're calling it the pocket chip i think is what it is which is like a little box thing like sort of like a nintendo ds for it yeah exactly and has the little keyboard on it yep and you plug it in and, and it has a screen and then another really interesting and exciting thing is they have a battery too that they've developed for it. This is you plug it on and it's good to go. And that's one thing with a Pi, it's great. We have to power it, so you can't really. It's not easy to do things. So there are projects we even I think last podcast maybe we talked about a battery for the Pi, but it's not really commonplace. And they're they, so, they've got all these accessories that are coming with it, and they're pretty. They seem like they're going to be well priced. If uh, I mean. Assuming their Kickstarter is somewhat ish close to other prices, it's not going to be too bad, I don't think. Yeah, and pretty much all you, that you need for you know a battery is a USB power bank that can let you charge, and uh, that it will you know you can have something charge from it, and it can be it itself can be charged at the same time. So once that's once you have something like that, you know it wouldn't be a problem. It'd be interesting to see statistics on how long their battery can go with just the Pi running, doing some task, maybe even turning Wi-Fi off and just cycling on like once a day or something. See, without a screen, it might be able to go a long time just doing something really simple, which would be really interesting. So uh, this is why I sort of doubt the uh, Internet of Things uh, is the security of all of this. So, uh, you know, it's the new hot thing that you know everyone feels that they must rush into, and in doing so, they will often neglect uh, security of these devices. And you know, as you know, you know the Internet of Things that these you know get embedded into are like TVs and refrigerators and stuff. Things that tend to stick around quite a bit longer than your normal computer. You know, like. I'm pretty sure the refrigerator in this apartment has been there for at least 20 years. Um, and, you know, TVs can last easily 10, 20 years. The, you know, this is true. The technology that would go into them would become old very quickly in computer terms. Yeah, and the thing about, like, smart TVs and stuff, you know, they support, you know, YouTube and Netflix and stuff, but, like, how often do those apps get updated? You know... Because, you know, like pretty much, you know, any, you know, large manufacturer, large electronics manufacturer, you know, like they really can't be bothered to give a crap about a model they released last year, you know, and like they will continue to live in your house for like 20 years, maybe. 
So, like, it'll be obsolete pretty much immediately, at least those features. Yes, and another aspect to that is, is Netflix going to be around tomorrow? Probably, but not necessarily. So, so your TV could break because its app for that doesn't work. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they could change the protocol on that but not update the app on the TV. Uh, Then some other competitor can come along and completely, you know, like eat Netflix's lunch and suddenly you wouldn't have ability to stream movies uh, from the internet to your TV. Um, but uh, on more specific to this article, it's talking about uh, smart grids. Uh, so the uh, open smart grid protocol has been analyzed uh, specifically in the paper, dumb crypto in smart grids practical crypto analysis of the open smart grid protocol explains how the authenticated encryption scheme used in the OSGP is open to numerous attacks. This paper posits a handful that can be pulled off with minimal computational effort. Specifically under fire is the homegrown message authentication code called OMA Digest. So, you know, this sort of, you know, violates the uh, you know, the number one rule of uh, cryptography is, you know, don't do your own thing. Uh, you know, message authentication codes, those are like dead simple and like standards have been established and uh, like methods have been devised that are, you know, considered secure. They are routinely used like every millisecond on the internet. Uh, and if you're concerned about you know, since these are small embedded devices, you know, you can easily get together like some sort of, you know, like hardware specifically just to do uh, like, you know, these cryptography uh, operations. This, it, we were talking before the show some about the possible uses of such a exploit and we're thinking you know, maybe, maybe perhaps someone could decrypt information being sent to your power company and uh, see what you're doing with your electricity, which kind of, you know, invasion of privacy, or maybe someone might use it to uh, change what their meter reads to the power company. I, I don't know specifically how they do it, but if they can decrypt the communication between you and your power company, or one really scary one would be, suppose the power company has programmed into your meter, way to shut it off for like, if you don't pay your bill or something, and suddenly if someone is able to send a message that your meter would respond to and shut off everyone's meter all at once, that could, like, shut down A denial parts. of service. Yeah, denial of service. It could shut down, you know, massive areas in just an instant of time. And then, you know, like, say, in, with the cyber attacks that are so common from other countries nowadays, you combine an attack like that of shutting off everyone's power grid at once with some other, maybe a physical attack or something, it could cause mass confusion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, granted, you know, the power grid is one of the most neglected uh, pieces of infrastructure and, you know, unfortunately one of the most uh, vulnerable to attack is as, you know, it, uh, probably in, like, effort expended to, you know, uh, exploit it versus, like, area of attack, you know, or a rather area affected. So, uh, meanwhile, uh, we haven't talked about AMD for a while, um, but AMD has been making some noise about how their new Zen CPU architecture is going to be like, 
It supposedly has 40% more performance than the current excavator cores. Uh, you know, apparently Zen is going to be a completely new microarchitecture. Uh, apparently the first one in a while, at least the first good ones in a while. Um, since they've, you know, realized that they can't really survive as the, you know, the budget or the second rate, uh, x86 CPU manufacturer or rather designer now since they, you know, sold off their fabs. Um, so, uh, like one of the ways that they're going to be doing this is that they're going to be integrating the memory directly on the CPU die. Uh, this is called high bandwidth memory. This is going to uh, come in real handy for their uh, graphics cores, you know, because if you look at, you know, the memory bandwidth on, you know, graphics cards, they're just huge uh, compared to a CPU. So what's the, I'm just trying to think, you have your cache one and two that's typically was on the chip, I thought before, how is this different from the cache one and two? That's what this, unfortunately, I can't really find any detail on that. Like if it's going to be just like a several hundred megabyte or a few gigabyte level three or four cache or whether or whether it'll just be like the first like four or eight gigabytes of your memory space. Oh, wow. That could be really huge if it was actually like into gigabytes on the chip. Yeah. So, you know. Like, you can easily do, like, you know, like a gigabyte or so, like, just in, like, a three, like, a three-dimensional stacked form, uh, like, many, in fact, if you look at, like, high-end uh, uh, system-on-a-chip uh, processors for cell phones, mm -hmm. like, that's pretty much how they work, is that the CPU is, like, pretty much stacked on top, the memory is stacked on top of the CPU, and, like, those go easily four gigabytes now, Um so you could essentially scale that up to, you know, like a desktop processor. So that's, that would be something that, uh, like, netbooks could really benefit from that if you could uh, make use of that, and that would give you a way to make memory smaller and not make the netbook smaller. So then, uh, like, I especially know Linux is, uh, like, well on, I think they're actually, like, it's an embedded feature in the kernel, about, I think, non-heterogeneous memory architecture. Uh, like, that is uh, essentially used for, like, when you have, uh, like, several processors in a server, that if one, like, act when I say processor, I actually mean, like, CPU uh, packages. So if, like, the CPU on one side of the server wants to access memory belonging to a CPU on, like, the other side of the board, it'll have to go through a few memory controllers to do that. So, like, this non-heterogeneous memory uh, architecture, like, sort of figures that out, and, like, supposedly it would know how to cache that a little bit, I guess. So it might put it someplace else that the other processor can get easily? Yeah, it would, like, put it, like, more local. I see. Like, it would know how to move it around, you know, sort of like cache, but still, like, general memory, I guess. Okay. So, um... So, I was... One other thing I noticed, it said simultaneous multi-threading high throughput, which I thought multi-threading was supposed to be at the same time anyways, with, like, multiple cores, or are they talking about something different there? They're talking about something a little bit different, so... You know how on Intel CPUs, especially the i3 and i7s, and I think 
pretty much all the Xeons that even though, for instance, I have a quad-core CPU i7, mm-hmm. but it's an eight-threaded CPU. So Using this, the hyper-threading, is that the term? Yes. So that's, you know, even though you have one core, you can shove two threads into it. That's what simultaneous multi-threading is. And, like, if you look at other exotic processors like the power architecture and uh, I think even Spark, uh, like, I think especially Spark went crazy on this, like, uh, at least for the power uh, CPUs, like the IBM processors, like, they can run, like, eight threads per core. Per core? Yeah. That's pretty impressive. So, like, if you have an eight-core CPU, you can shove 64 threads through it. So, uh, like, you know, uh, simultaneous multi-threading, or SMT, is the term for that. So why why are they touting it as some great feature since hyper-threading has been around? Because because AMD uh, does not do that as of yet. I see. So this is a really big deal for them to become into the market where Intel has already been. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting feature. Um, at least I know uh, reading about it from like back when it was uh, on the Pentium 4s that uh, like apparently it's only about 10 or 15% more transistors, but you can get like 50% more performance out of it. I'm trying to remember the, the concept of how it worked. So... Uh, is- with the pipelining, they're messing with the stages and pushing things through uh, before it's done? Something, something like that, like that but it, I believe it's more upon execution units in the processor. Like, for each ind- like for any given instruction, like, not all of the execution units may be active in processing that. So, like, it's just using resources more efficiently. So, like, instead of building on another core, you're just, you know, slipping in another thread... Uh, using the resources that the other thread is not using. I see. So that, does that mean then with that uh, hyper-threading that you aren't always able to take advantage of that and so you wouldn't necessarily necessarily see, like in the example of the one core with eight threads in it, you wouldn't necessarily see that 8x increase in performance. Correct. If they're all doing finding prime numbers or something like that. Right. Like if they're... If they're all hitting the CPU at one time, you know, then you're not going to get, you know, eight times the performance. Um, like that really comes in handy when one thread has stalled. Like if it's waiting for something to come in from RAM, like the other thread can just take over. It's like, okay, I see you're, you know, waiting for something, you're idling, you know, then it just, you know, sort of takes over from there while the other thread is waiting. I see. So it's actually, is still somewhat well geared for a user because if you're browsing the internet you want uh, power when you're scrolling down the window but most of the time your browser is somewhere idle whereas you may have some background processors that are doing things and stuff so it sounds like it's somewhat useful for that scenario then so and uh, they're also saying that uh, their zen architecture will uh, be their first with uh, FinFET uh, transistors which are the 3D type transistors that Intel has been touting about for a couple of years now. So does Intel not uh, have the 3D just yet? Or Oh, yeah. Oh, like, okay. like, I remember about four years ago, like, they made, like, an entire announcement over it, like a press conference, like, look, we came up with this really revolutionary new way to make processors more energy efficient. So, and it's 
basically how the individual, I think it's like a, like a tri-gate, uh, transistor, uh-huh. like how that's actually physically structured, like in like actual silicon, like instead of like you have like a, uh, like it's essentially PN junctions. So instead of like having it flat in 2D, yes, it's like stood up. I so, see. so like the lithography process continues to get smaller, but the contact of the gates is like on the side. So it's more contact even than smaller. Yeah. So, but that's uh, like you can pretty much research that, and Intel will tell you like all that you know since they're essentially the ones that came up with this. So really, it feels like most of the Zen processors catch up with Intel. Yes. So, and if, you know, if it suddenly becomes competitive with Intel, that's great. Like, looking back on it, like, I've had my system, or at least my CPU, for, like, four years straight now. Um, and I'm not really looking forward to upgrading it anytime soon. Uh, and as is, I've had it for about two and a half, almost three years with the graphics card and SSD in there. So, um, and, you know, considering the price of a processor now... Like, my life, my computing life will not get, like, $300 better. <laughs> I, I agree with you there. It's really processors. If you have a decent, somewhat modern one, processors are to the point at this current stage that buying the latest and greatest one doesn't really get you much more increased performance. So, uh, anyways, uh, let's go on to something maybe a little bit boring. Uh, so, uh since we're at my apartment now, uh, there is Verizon Fios. Uh, and uh, in the past week or so, I picked up on some articles that uh, may be of slight relevance to me, uh, in that both uh, Cogent and Level 3 have signed uh, uh, agreements uh, with Verizon for interconnection. So hopefully uh, YouTube will be a little bit faster on Fios. Um, so like, you know, I just want to make this clear that, uh, you know, Verizon and Cogent, that's one agreement, then Verizon and Level 3 is another. Like, it's not like a three-way deal or anything. It just so happens that it came pretty close to each other, I think maybe on the same day. Um, and, uh, you know, like, this is speculation over the, uh, you know, the FCC uh, decision to regulate internet as, uh, uh, t- was it Title II carrier, common carrier? So, yeah, I wonder what, uh, you know, evil government intervention will do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's another debate right there. So, uh, let's talk about Microsoft, uh, for a while. Hey, you mentioned Windows 10 back there. I did mention Windows 10. Apparently, Windows 10 will be the last version of Windows. Which sounds shocking, but it's not exactly what you think. Uh, like when they say that, what they're, what they really mean is that it will be like the last packaged version of Windows. What just comes to my mind just now is, uh, I believe it's Office 360, which is a, a pay as you go version of Office. And so I guess the concept would be similar. You're, maybe in a pay-as-you-go Windows. Yeah, so, like, it'll be more of a rolling release type of deal. So, like, you won't buy, like, a single version of Windows. You'll just buy Windows, and then, like, Microsoft will just update it. 
And uh, like we were just talking before, uh, before I think even when we started recording the Fringe, that uh, you know, a you know the nice version of Windows costs two hundred dollars, and if you buy that, like each time Windows comes out, like that's about two hundred dollars over about three or four years, which works out to approximately fifty dollars a year, which is similar to the pricing on Xbox Live, uh, which you know everyone that, you know, has an Xbox seems to pay, like, hardly any questions asked about that. But the big counter to that, though, is that not everyone upgrades when the latest and greatest comes out. Exactly. Sometimes they wait for getting a new PC. That's often, whoa, 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 that run with that idea for a bit. The PC manufacturers are not going to like this because that's a big, big selling point to sell a new PC. Oh, a new version of Windows came out by our computer and that is huge. Yeah. That, that, that right there is just really big. Anyways, back, uh, yes. So you don't always buy a new version of Windows and your older computers. Oftentimes you may have older ones laying around that still have other versions of Windows on. A great example is my laptop is Windows 8 because I bought it last year, but I have a desktop that I built a few years back that's Windows 7. And I'm not really going out and buying Windows 8 to put on it because I don't think it would get me anything, and Windows 8 annoys me still anyways. And, and, like, Windows 8 is, I think, like, the base home edition is, like, 100 bucks. Yeah. And it, it, like, your life will not be $100 better by no. getting Windows 8. And it probably would be worse by getting Windows 8, because I think I have, like, the professional version of Windows 7. So it's not even, like, I would be getting anything better at all. Speaking of, I believe mine is uh, professional. Profe- professional, yep. too. I think I got my version of Windows 7 back when I was a college student. Yep, me too. I got a good deal on it or free, forget which. I think it was like $30 or something. Hmm. Whatever it was, it was like reasonable price. Like I was like, yeah, I could pay that much money for an operating system. Mine mine was free. Okay, it may have been free. I forget. It's been such a long time. Yeah, like I remember, I think it was like the Microsoft Academic Alliance or something. They pretty much had every uh, like version or like rather every, almost every edition of uh like microsoft's products like the windows server sql server visual studio pretty much everything except office yes uh there's dream spark i believe was the website that was it had visual studio that that's it. that's like the newer okay kind of it's thing newer one. okay so but yeah that, that was a great great uh site back when i was in college so uh hey microsoft uh held their build conference last week uh like april 29th to may 1st and given what was announced there, I don't think that Microsoft was even there. So given that, you know, they were talking about things that weren't Windows and their products that weren't running only on Windows. Yes, like their .NET, they released an actual version of it for Linux and Mac. Their dot, their .NET, they released an actual version of it for Linux and Mac. And I was uh, browsing through the, the pictures, too, on another article about a... Visual Studio Code, which is the IDE for Linux and Mac, they actually showed a screenshot of a Mac running a Microsoft product. Uh, yeah, which is is a new thing. Interestingly enough, uh, the the IDE has a base in Chromium, which is uh, what uh, Google has for Chrome that they have their offshoot on yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's the underlying open source part of uh, Chrome, which. Uh, like if you uh, like run pretty much any Linux distro and you want to install Chrome, 
it'll say, do you mean chromium? Yes, of course you mean that. So it's practically the same, except it doesn't have the, like, the reporting back to Google or the uh, the Flash player embedded into it. And it's the, the idea of Microsoft, first off, just making the .NET, like, I knew it would be coming for Linux when they open-sourced it. Yeah, that, that was that was pretty much given. Yes, and but my assumption was going to be, usually like, Mono would uh, get involved with that, like they did with making the other one or some other organization would actually make the port for the Linux, but Microsoft did it, which is good. That's a really good move on Microsoft's part of their embracing Linux and uh, seeing that the world is more than just Windows and they're setting themselves up well to be used to have their language used for many different uh, distributions of uh, operating systems. And another point in there too. uh, Oh, right. The the IDE too is also opening up uh, to cater to people that don't have Windows because, I mean, hey, sometimes you want to develop in Linux, and that makes that possible. It doesn't look like a fancy uh, IDE, but it is something. And yeah, I'm sure very, very Metro-styled, or, yeah. sorry, modern UI-styled. Yes. it's. I'd say it's probably going to get better uh, given time, but it looks, I mean, it looks usable from what I can see in the screenshots. It's and a great it looks concept. at least it looks like its default skin is rather uh, white on dark, which is uh, really cool. And uh, then it uh, showed on looks like Ubuntu, you know, a uh, console uh, like sort of artwork, you know, with Tux and Visual Studio icon. Yes, that, that's that's a, a good icon. But it's 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 interesting. Oh oh, another great feature. They're integrating Git in uh with the ide just like as a native thing and so i was commenting to andrew before the show that that's actually pretty huge because like today i mean kind of the thing with visual studio where you use tfs with the newer 2013 it does have some integration with git but in my experience it's been kind of shaky as far as working well uh but this is good that they're kind of actually embracing Git as a really good alternative to TFS because TFS really isn't all that good for source control. Uh, Git just has a lot of polish and a lot of well well thought out ways it was put together and designed, yeah. and it's got a lot of community support now, and and it's is just kind of the standard. And it's good that Microsoft is embracing that and realizing it is the standard and and uh, offering ways to well, use I, it. I think that was kind of a given. You know, since that they put all their .NET code on GitHub. Yes, yeah, definitely. It's a given. It's it's just that they're enforcing the fact that it is a given. They're continuing support for their. They're getting closer to kind of being their official source control, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure if that was actually Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we haven't talked about the NSA for a while. So uh, Hi, NSA. Hi, NSA. How are you doing? So uh, the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, apparently that's the one in Manhattan, has ruled that the collection of phone metadata is illegal. So, uh, you know, it's, this is essentially what everyone was... Uh, Maybe not everyone, but, uh, you know, privacy advocates were uh, hoping for, since it sort of goes against the, uh, like, the Fourth Amendment. Um, you know, like, some comments here, you know, such expansive uh, development of government repositories of formerly private records would be an unprecedented con- concentrate 
or rather contraction, of privacy expectations of all Americans. We would expect such a momentous decision to be preceded by substantial debate and, and expressed in unmistakable language. Uh, there is no evidence of such a debate. So uh, with that, you know, uh, that's sort of like deemed illegal. That doesn't mean that it will actually stop, unfortunately. And the appeals court did not rule on whether it violated the Constitution. So, I mean, I guess it's, you know, being illegal sort of implies that it's against the Constitution, but, you know, it hasn't actually come out and stated that outright. That's one thing with the court decisions that's kind of makes you suspicious just thinking back. I remember there's some deal with the the Gulf of uh, Mexico with the oil spill. Something with like President Obama had a some directive in the court that they couldn't drill there and like the court had said that actually they could, but then there was just ignored. And so what the hmm. courts say aren't always what it is, but it seems like it's making talk about it. Like there's speaking that uh, actually President Obama spoke on it and said that he wanted I uh, agreed with the court, and then the candidates running for president are saying that they agree with the court. Just creating talk, if nothing else, and it seems like it might push Congress to go and uh, move things in a good direction. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. Uh, unfortunately, we have no feedback uh, this for this episode, uh, but uh, we might for next episode, given that I pretty much bashed the May the 4th be with you uh, phrase. I take it we have fans, great fans of the Star Wars. Yes, yes. So uh, in at any rate, I might want to uh, observe International Backup Awareness Day because, uh, you know, the Internet might just go crazy. And uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, it was this past weekend that I pretty much went insane and downloaded uh, all the Humble Indie bundles and put them on uh, torrents. You know, like, you know, there's like a few ways of downloading those. So I, you know, went to the torrents and got all those and I pretty much torrented about 300 gigabytes over a weekend. <laughs> so is your ISP going to throttle you? Um, for Fios, no. Even though, even though uh, Verizon says that there is no cap on Fios. Like, there is evidence of a cap on Fios, but at any rate, 300 gigabytes is way below that. That's good then. Uh, so, uh, hi mom, how you doing? Uh, let's see. Uh, aside from that, uh, yeah, I finished Broken Age uh, about two days ago, so I should be writing a review on that, along with the uh, Machinarium. I want to uh, put a review up on that, and I'm and since uh, just talking to you this evening, I might go and replay Beneath the Steel Sky. Yes, that was that was a fun game back when I played it. It was it's an old one, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, work seems to be going pretty good. You know, just you know. Pretty much as, as always, you know, and, uh, you know, it's getting pretty warm, so I'm trying to go outside and walk around the park. It's, it's, it's good having it be summertime again and not the cold winter and icy roads and stuff. But it's almost getting too warm, though. Today I was, I was out in my car and sweating pretty good. It felt like, felt like summertime again. I had my air conditioner going and everything. Yep. So, uh, yeah, get out there, you know, maybe run around or at least walk around. Guess that's it, so have a good one. Have a good one.